Thank you for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways. We have a very special guest this week, and he's been on our show before, and I'm welcoming him back, but with some new information on the work that he's doing. Welcome, Richard DeCody. Well, thank you very much, Heather. I'm very happy to be with you and to um, share with your audience uh, everything that's happening um, in this uh, very important field that we're all involved in. Well, and when you say this important field, you're involved as an attorney, and the field that we're talking about is custody, family court issues, and especially as they relate to abusive situations. And I've been doing a lot of shows on this issue. We were fortunate to have Joan Meyer a few months ago talking about her latest research. We've had a number of researchers, and uh, we have talked a lot about it because it really is a crisis. So I know that this is your background, and I'm going to do a little caveat here. I'm just recovering from laryngitis, so if it sounds like I have a really bad smoking habit, I don't. (laughs) Bear with me on the voice issue, please. Um, Absolutely. That that said, you're running for Supreme Court of the state of Louisiana. Yes, I am a candidate for uh, the Louisiana Supreme Court as an associate justice. Um, It's going to be a special election uh, that will be called after the current justice, Justice uh, Greg Guidry, who has been nominated to the federal court bench by President Trump, is confirmed by the U.S. Senate, and then the uh, the governor will call a special election to fill that that position. The um, it, it's not clear when that election will be. I suspect that Justice Guidry will be confirmed by the Senate within the next three to five weeks, and then the governor calls the election. So the election may be anywhere from, say, June, July on to October. So we'll just have to wait and see. Okay, so we'll we'll keep posted on that. Now, Judge uh, Guidry has been in office, at least in the Supreme Court level, for about 10 years. So he's moving on. And I'm assuming yeah, that you're looking right. at this as a relatively long-term position, too. What excites me about this is that many people have said over the last few years, what we need is to educate judges. We need to educate judges about the situations with uh, abusive um, uh, abusers and family court. And bingo, if we get judges who are familiar with these situations, that's, that's a huge win, I would think. But you tell me, why are you doing this? Well, you're absolutely right. Um, uh, There are very many, many cases that are filed in the Louisiana Supreme Court that deal with um, family court issues. And uh, uh, there are seven justices on the Supreme Court. Uh, They all have had, um, for the most part, um, some degree of experience in family court cases but uh, none of them, and I don't believe any of the candidates who will be running for the seat, have anywhere near the, the vast uh, experience that I've had over the last 41 years uh, all over the country. And I've, I've tried cases and, and these custody cases involving domestic violence and child abuse in um, 45 states other than Louisiana over 41 years. I've traveled more than 2 million miles. I won a case in the United States Supreme Court on behalf of two sexually abused kids. I have an advanced law degree, a master's in laws from the University of uh, Loyola University in Chicago in child and family law. 
Um, so, uh, and I've written uh, over 25 laws that have been enacted by the Louisiana legislature and other states, and some of these laws have been replicated in foreign countries. Uh, they're primarily designed to protect uh, domestic violence victims, child abuse victims, uh, to reform the foster care process, juvenile court proceedings. Uh, I created the first program in Louisiana to provide attorneys specifically for abused and neglected kids. Okay, I'm a foster parent. I am also an adoptive parent. And um, I, I think that's a, a wealth of experience that uh, that's pretty hard to, to match. And it's been a very long process. It's been uh, a very grueling process. It's it's uh, uh, been undertaken at, uh, at a great deal of personal and financial cost to me, but it's been well worth it because I think I've been able to make a big impact um, for uh, for kids around the country. That all said, um, my experience is much broader than that. It's, um, you know, I'm not just an attorney who has one little uh, niche uh, practice in this area because the issues that I've been involved in, uh, nearly all of them involve uh, issues of constitutional law, due process, uh, con- contempt of court, which is a, a very uh, troubling um, procedure that's used in family court, and I think very often misused. You know, the law says that uh, parents have an obligation to protect their kids from abuse, but when they do that, they're often punished by being held in contempt or uh, losing custody of their kids, uh, their free speech issues, First Amendment issues at stake involving gag orders, orders that uh, family court judges impose on parents and, and attorneys in these cases that they're not supposed to talk about uh, what's happening in court, although a lot of times what's happening in these courtrooms is very egregious. Uh, so, you know, I, I I don't know of any other attorney who's been in as many courtrooms around the country as I have. Um, I'm also admitted to the Pennsylvania Bar, all the federal courts in Louisiana, the uh, federal court in the Northern District of Texas, the Eastern District of Texas, the Northern District of Ohio, the um, District of Colorado, the uh, Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, the Ninth Circuit, the Third Circuit, and the Fourth Circuit Courts of Appeal. So so my overall... um, uh, legal experience is very, very broad. It's, I've also have uh, written articles that have been uh, published and cited in the law books that are used to train law students. So um, uh, as as a, an attorney, uh, an appellate uh, attorney, uh, a legal scholar, and an academic, and you know, I've taught all over the country, to lawyers, judges, physicians, psychologists. So I, I think I'm very, very, very well equipped at, at this point in my career to, uh, I think, for the purposes of, of the law, to give the ultimate uh, contribution, and that would be to serve as a Supreme Court justice, uh, overseeing the work of the other judges in the Louisiana court system. Now, I'm assuming that Louisiana, like many of us, many of our states, it's an elected office. It's not an appointed office, right? 
Yes, it's an elected office, um, and uh, I am uh, running as a, a constitutional Republican. So in 1992, I uh, was able to argue a case in the United States Supreme Court, which very few attorneys ever have the chance to do. And that was the very first case I took to the United States Supreme Court. And the United States Supreme Court uh, chooses to hear very, very few cases, and they, they did elect to hear uh, a case that I took out of the uh, the federal courts in Louisiana and the uh, U.S. Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, wherein I was representing two sexually abused girls who were suing their father and his girlfriend for sexually abusing them. And the federal courts had thrown it out, claiming that there was, a, quote, a domestic relations exception to federal court jurisdiction. So if you go back and, and if you go to my Facebook page, Dakota for Justice or DakotaForJustice.com, you you can actually hear my argument in the United States Supreme Court in, um, in 1992. And the issues are dealing with complex issues of federal court jurisdiction. And, and the question that is always relevant um, – in courtrooms and appellate courts, and that's who makes the law. Is it the judges or the legislature or Congress? And that's where there's a very big uh, philosophical divide generally between more, um, uh, say, more um, uh, liberal or progressive attorneys who want the courts to be making the laws versus more conservative or constitutional lawyers such as myself who think that's really a legislative function and a congressional function. And uh, so you can hear me actually argue in 1992 when I wasn't obviously running for anything, arguing, I argued it very successfully and won that case 9-0 in the United States Supreme Court, that it was indeed Congress's job to define what the federal court jurisdiction was and was not the job of the various judges who had themselves created this so-called domestic relations exception to federal court jurisdiction. So although that case dealt with with child abuse, the um, the actual legal issues were the complex issues of um, of uh, federal court jurisdiction, constitutional law, and uh, I was able to undo a uh, hundred years of bad um, jurisprudence in in that case. So it's um, my perspective uh, on the law is is very rooted in the Constitution, due process, um, and uh, the rights of parents to care for their kids, but the rights of kids um, not to be abused. Um, you know, there's a lot in Sure. Because you bring up an interesting thing, and that is I, I know I don't often hear about uh, family court and custody issues as coming having anything to do with the civil rights, um, I, I don't hear it as a constitutional issue. So it's interesting to me that you bring that up. So how do you view these as a constitutional issue? How how should we lay people be looking at these these issues and these situations from a constitutional uh, perspective? Well, and that's a that's a very very good point, and and it it gets a little complicated because and if you go to my website, uh, again, com and the Facebook page, uh, Dakota for Justice, you'll see uh, a link 
to my LLM, which was my Master's of Laws thesis that I wrote in 2010 uh, and 11 that's called um, Fact-Based Custody Decisions, Why Family Court Judges Should Reclaim Their Basic Adjudicatory Responsibility. And what I talk about in there, and, and the link is actually that my, my uh, thesis is published on a website of the National Council of Juvenile and Family Court Judges, which is a national organization of family judges and juvenile court judges around the country. What I, what I talk about is this, um, this sort of effort uh, in um, the uh, family court and the family court bar, which is the, the attorneys who practice in the family court, for courts not to function like courts are supposed to function. There's been an effort over the last uh, about two or three decades for family courts to function more like some sort of clinical therapy session where the lawyers are not actually representing their clients but are part of a some sort of team with the judge and that the whole purpose of this this uh, adventure of going to court in a family court case is to diminish conflict and to uh, make sure that everybody gets along, that that is often seen as the purpose of the family courts. Now, so this, this, some of that has some merit. It's, it's very, very important for, for people to try to resolve conflicts without having to resort to courts, for people to resolve their disputes amicably, uh, for people to work out agreements in custody cases, and that sort of thing. That's absolutely laudable. However, that's what actually happens in the vast majority of divorce and custody cases. People doubt um, and and are able to resolve their differences. The cases that end up taking a lot of time and the ones that pose the biggest danger to the kids involved or to the the other the the one of the parents are cases involving domestic violence, child abuse, child sexual abuse, uh, substance abuse, um, mental illness, and things that actually endanger the other family members. Well, what the family courts do not seem to be able to reconcile is the fact that the model or the paradigm that's used for the, the ordinary cases where there are no uh, issues that really endanger the kids. It's just simply trying to facilitate some sort of of uh, custodial schedule and, and uh, delegation of responsibility that makes life as, as uh, smooth as possible for the kids involved, that that model does not work where you have these other real serious issues. And the family courts try to uh, foist on these uh, these other cases, uh, a model that just doesn't work, and consequently, those are the cases that uh, take up a lot of time, end up very bad for the kids, and are uh, very um, 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 cause lawyers to sort of abandon their role and try and do something other than advocate for their clients, and that's that's simply 
a very, very bad recipe. Now, how does the Constitution fit into that? Well, the basic constitutional uh, principle of due process is often lost in the family court. And what does that mean? Due process is the right to notice, the right to a, a fair hearing before an impartial judge, and the right, in most cases, to an appeal. Well, how does that uh, get lost in family court? Well, a lot of times uh, people, uh, one party will not file a pleading, such as a petition or a motion, that actually says what it is that they're seeking and why they're seeking it, so that the other party doesn't know uh, what to defend or what to prepare for. Or the judge might take it upon his or herself just to go off in a different direction and start uh, adjudicating issues uh, that uh, are not before the court. And that's that's improper. Often you'll see, too, and this is a very, very big problem, and that's uh, ex parte communications. And, and what that means is where the judge is having uh, conversations or communications with people, witnesses, psychologists, who knows who, maybe one of the attorneys, a guardian ad litem, without notice and without the opportunity for the other side to be present. Uh, that's a very, very big problem in family court, and and lawyers are very reluctant to call the judges on that. What that does is that biases the judge against one of the parties, typically the mom or the non-abused parent, and so you can't get a fair trial. So that's due process is, is undercut that way. Um, a lot of times the rules of evidence are not followed, so courts are hearing things that are inadmissible that the court, the judge should not hear. Um, and, and a lot of times the lawyers, because they want to get along, uh, often I hear, well, you know, the um, uh, I have to practice in this court, so I'm not going to make any waves. I'm not going to hold the judge's feet to the fire. I'm just going to, uh, you know, uh, look the other way. Another big problem in family court, and I've heard this for, for decades, is the lawyers go back in chambers, and although the judge has not heard any of the evidence, uh, the judge says, well, this is what I'm going to do. And, you know, go tell your clients that they have to agree to this because this is what I'm going to do. Well, that that's terrible. I mean, that's a, that undermines everything. So clients who have lots of proof of domestic violence or abuse are told by their lawyers that the judge has already decided what's going to happen, and then, therefore, they have to agree to it. Well, you know, lay people don't know that that's totally wrong. So they they will enter what's into called a consent judgment, and then when the consent judgment blows up and the kids are, are harmed and the, the parent comes back to court and says, look, you know, there's this long history of abuse, domestic violence, child abuse, judge says, well, you agreed to this. Uh, you know, you should have brought this up before. Why didn't you bring it up before? Well, then the lawyer doesn't want to admit that he or she screwed up the case. So this is this is the stuff that is plowed over day after day, and, and I, I suspect, from my experience, almost every family court in the country. So, so uh, these things have got to be 
um, reined in, and, and judges have got to follow the proper procedures, and lawyers need to understand that they're still lawyers because the family court is still a court. Uh, another area that uh, constitutional issues arise in family court is judges are, are telling uh, parents uh, that they can't talk about certain things, um, and there, there are cases that deal with these issues in uh, in family court. The, uh, the First Amendment still pl- applies. You have issues involving religious freedom and, and parents' ability to uh, choose what religion their kids practice. These are all constitutional issues that have very serious implications. And unfortunately, uh, a lot of times lawyers just overlook this uh, for expedience and to uh, just uh, avoid making waves. And and that's all very sad. Well, and you've brought up some really good issues that I've heard over and over and over. And for some reason, probably because I'm not an attorney, I've never really thought of them as constitutional issues. Uh, but now that you point it out, it makes perfect sense. You know, the, this, uh, you know, uh, ex parte communication, the rights to appeal. I was recently, I, I don't know if I mentioned this, but I, I helped uh, assist with uh, people getting their ADA accommodations. And um, I recently had a case in a Virginia court. And I'd never run across this before, but their family courts are courts, not courts of record. And that well, means there's no no record of it. And in order to file an appeal, you have to first provide a transcript of the case that you're appealing. So you have to, out of your own pocket, hire a court reporter to come in and record the proceedings. I'd never heard of that. You know, well, I mean... Well, Virginia and a couple of other states do not have court official court reporters for civil cases. So if if you're going to have a trial in the Virginia courtroom in a divorce case or custody case or anything else, you have to bring your own court reporter to have a transcript. And you're absolutely right. If there's no transcript, there is no opportunity, opportunity to appeal. So, And I've had a number of cases in Virginia and have... Uh, reviewed a number of cases in Virginia as a consulting attorney. And, you know, people tell me, well, we don't have a transcript. My lawyer said we didn't need a court reporter. And I always say, did your lawyer tell you that he or she cared absolutely nothing for your case and that your case was a complete waste of time because, in, in their view, because... Uh, every case that's tried has to be tried with an eye to an appeal if necessary. Uh, you don't know what's going to happen in the courtroom, and you have to have a transcript. So when attorneys don't even bother to tell their clients that they uh, that they need to get a court reporter there, uh, then I, I just don't understand that. I've, I've never uh, understood why an attorney would go to the trouble of having a trial without uh, making the effort to have a transcript there in the event that an appeal is necessary. And that's such a disservice to, to their clients. Well, and it's horrifically expensive, you know, and, and when you look at some of these cases where so many abuse victims are pro se, how are they going to drag up another 1000 or $2,000 to get 
a, a court reporter in there so that they can appeal. And so when the the judge does something that you know is pretty egregious, and they would and it would seem logical that the client should be able to appeal that decision, the client can't because that client didn't have a spare twenty five hundred bucks hanging around to hire a court reporter on the on the on the chance that she might. Be, you know, want to appeal. I, I was just gobsmacked by that. I thought, boy, why don't you just sure. you know, tie one arm around their backs? I, I don't, I don't understand that. Um, and there and are there are constitutional issues and uh, clearly implicated by that. If you have a right to um, participate as as an indigent, uh, where you're not required to pay the court fees then you should be able to have uh, a court reporter there. And I think there are ways in Virginia to um, obtain um, pro bono court reporters. The bigger problem that I have seen – I'm sorry? Well, I was just going to say, just for your information, in case it ever comes up and you need to know, I was successful in getting the court to pay. They didn't like it, but I was successful in getting the court to to pay for – uh, a court reporter um, under ADA accommodation. Sure. Well, wonderful. Um, and I think I think the bigger problem is that the lawyers don't ask and the lawyers don't bother. You know, I, I'm I'm very frustrated with the legal profession um, because uh, it's um, you know re- lawyers have a reputation generally of being aggressive and 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 fighting uh, for their clients and. I think far too often they're intimidated by the judges and and they don't uh, they don't want to speak up and you know there was a case in Pennsylvania a few years back where these two judges in uh, Luzerne County Pennsylvania had um a deal with this contractor to build this uh this uh, institution this juvenile institution and then these two judges would sentence every kid who came in their courtroom to some period of institutionalization, and then the state would pay the institution. And uh, then the institution would kick money back to the judges. And uh, this went on for a number of years. These two judges uh, made several million dollars from these illegal kickbacks. Now, there were lawyers who knew what was going on, who were not actively involved but knew that the judges were corrupt and it took a long time for anybody to have the guts to blow the whistle on them which i think is 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 despicable and when uh these judges one of them i think went to federal prison for 27 years the other one for 17 years and uh the Pennsylvania Supreme Court had to go back and undo all of these um juvenile court adjudications that these two judges had um, had imposed because it was all bogus and it was all corrupt. And and again, you know, the judges. You know, when I when I was in law school, I uh, I consciously made a decision. And I always tell this story when I teach law students and when I make presentations to to public groups. And that is this: if at any time I had to do the right thing, and as a result of doing the right thing, I would never practice law again. I committed myself to doing the right thing and going to find some other uh, line of work. So once you do that, once you say, look, if I'm going to 
do the right thing and stick my neck out, and as a result, my career is over, then so be it. And it's very liberating to take that that view because then you don't spend the rest of your life uh, afraid of your own shadow. And I see that happen far too many times. I've heard you say that they don't want to rock the boat because they have to bring cases consistently before this particular judge, and if the judge dislikes them, you know, it, it, it must be, you know, I'm not, I, I'm not, I have to be honest here, full, full disclosure, I'm not particularly empathetic toward most attorneys, but I am empathetic to that position because if you've got a job and your your job uh, depends on, you know, on, on another person's reasonably goodwill, uh, of course, you're going to be a little bit more cautious, you know, about what you do and whether you spill those beans. And you know, I mean, it's a well, human thing. So, but but I think that's a I think that's a false fear. You know, I yeah. um, mm-hmm. yes, absolutely. It's an excuse. I, I've never seen mm-hmm. an attorney uh, get uh, lose a practice because they stood up for what was right. I've never seen that. It's an excuse. I, um, I, I I've never bought it, and uh, and and don't intend to start now after 41 years. It's uh, because that's what attorneys are supposed to do. You know, it's very interesting when I when I was uh, uh, applying to be admitted to the Pennsylvania bar, I had judges from around the country write letters, and these are judges uh, who didn't know each other, and uh, write letters to the bar just kind of as references and uh they all pretty much just said the same thing about me uh and that was that um i'm always very well prepared i'm always um very uh professional and i always hold their feet to the fire and do it professionally and responsible and don't cut them any slack well that's you know that's the way to be that's what your job is so yeah. So it attorneys who do that are always respected, but you know, they might not be liked, you know, and for for the the 29 plus years that I have been raided by Martindale Hubble, which is the the oldest uh, uh confidential uh rating system for attorneys and what they do is they inquire of attorneys and judges who know you and ask them to comment on your ethics and your legal ability. And every year from the first year I was ever rated, I got the very highest rating of AV, which is uh, preeminent in ethics and legal ability. And I know that this is from judges and from lawyers who I have had, um, that I have gone to battle with, you know. So it's it's much better to be respected than to, than to be liked, and to be right than to be liked, and um, and I, I think far too often attorneys don't realize that and and don't view their their profession uh, properly. You know, attorneys. There's that that Shakespearean quote that people often cite, and that is, first let's kill all the lawyers." Uh, and that 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 quote is um, most people think refers to the fact that lawyers are, are were disliked, and the way to make society better is to do away with all the attorneys. 
Well, that's not what that reference was to. What what the, what that meant in the in the play was that for a tyrant to um, to be able to um, overwhelm the people, uh, what was necessary was for the lawyers to be eliminated because the lawyers are the the wall between the government and people and government abuses and the and ordinary people uh who are going about living their day-to-day lives. You know, when you think of a jury trial in a criminal case and you look at all the machinery of of government and the prosecution and the and the the, the big courthouse and all of the tools of law enforcement and forensics and everything else that that comes to play in a criminal prosecution and you have somebody charged with a crime and you have that jury uh that uh, the those 12 people who sit in a box and they are the um they are the wall i mean they're they're the uh the difference between uh government abuse and, and liberty which is the, the most basic and most precious um um tension uh that we have in, in government because it's very very easy for governmental abuses to to uh, drown and overwhelm people who are just trying to live their day-to-day lives. So when you have a jury that comes back and says not guilty, and that person, despite the best efforts of this vast machinery uh, of the government, um, just walks out of the courtroom, that's, that's a precious um, and phenomenal uh, gift that we have in this country. So, uh, and and the lawyer, who whose job it is to facilitate justice, their 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 only tools are questions and words and 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 the ability to to read the law and to argue it and and uh, and what a difference it makes if that's done correctly, you know. So. It's a it's a it's a very a very special very sacred uh, responsibility that we have and and a a very high precious duty that's been imposed on lawyers in this society. Well, and I'm gonna I'm looking at the clock, so if it sounds like I'm I'm trying to hurry you, I kind of am oh, because okay. we have so much that I want to share. Sure. I want you to share with us. Um, one is how do you think that being on your state Supreme Court will help you further the work that you've done, especially in family courts? Sure. Well, the work of a Supreme Court justice is to oversee the work of the other judges uh, in the state court system. So you have the trial court judges who are the the courts of first instance who uh, actually uh, try the cases, rule on the motions, rule on the lawsuits, uh, oversee the criminal prosecutions. And uh, when those cases are appealed, uh, the vast majority of them go to um, to the intermediate appellate courts, the circuit courts of appeal, and they uh, look at the, the legal rulings of, of the, the trial judges to see if um, if they were erroneous in, in their, their legal interpretations of what was before the court, and 
They look for abuse of discretion in rulings that the court made. Um, and then uh, the one side or the other may take that case to the Supreme Court and ask them, ask the Supreme Court to to uh, grant a, a writ, a, a supervisory writ, to determine if the appellate court judges made the right decisions. Uh, when laws are declared unconstitutional or cases involving the death penalty, those go right up to the Supreme Court. Part of the Supreme Court's job is to is to try and make sure that the interpretation of the various laws are uh, uniform across the state because each circuit has uh, often their own take on on what they think the law should be on particular statutes, etc. So um, a lot of times uh, these family court cases, particularly in these these uh, issues that have the constitutional implications, or the interpretation of statutes, um, or uh, coming up to the court, and I do, do not believe they're getting the sort of scrutiny that they they should. Uh, there is a a general feeling in the in the Supreme Court historically that family court judges are always in the best position to really know what's going on. And uh, they're given, I think, far too much deference in in uh, in what they do. And um, I don't know if there's there's a, just generally a, a reluctance sometimes for them to be second guess. And it's really not a matter of second guessing them. It's simply a matter of of really understanding what the legal issues are, what what the constitutional issues are in family court cases. Uh, what the proper statutory interpretations are, and and making a decision to um, to use the the powers of the Supreme Court to really clarify, enforce, strengthen, and um, the the statutes and the Constitution as they apply in the family court cases. So uh, it's okay. it's a very very important role. It's a court of last resort in in the state of Louisiana. Uh, when um, when family court judges and and again I, my interest in the state supreme court is not just in family court cases because my experience is much broader uh, it's it's just that I have chosen whatever uh, whatever abilities God has given me uh, that serve me as an attorney my focus has been to utilize those for the most part to protect abused women and children but. But the same skills and abilities that I have that I've brought to that field are certainly applicable to every other issue that's involved uh, in any Supreme Court cases. And because of the focus of the show, I am directing most of my questions uh, to you Mm -hmm. regarding the family group stuff. But clearly you have a, a wealth of experience beyond that. Um, but our listeners particularly, you know, focused oh, on, sure. on those issues mm-hmm. at this point. Um, one of the questions that I have real quick is um, what what does does the Supreme Court play a role in a judicial review? Because that kind of thing has been an ongoing problem in family court cases, people who are trying to um, right wrongs, et cetera, across the country. There is a judicial review board of some sort, and they review yeah. what the judges do. And uh, does the Supreme Court have any influence yes. or role Okay, in so you, you're talking about disciplining of judges or yes. 
Okay, so overseeing yes, behaviors and the, checking. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so um, there is a um, in Louisiana the Judiciary Commission, which is appointed an appointed uh, group of of people who uh, receive complaints about judges, just as you have the Office of Disciplinary Counsel and the Louisiana Attorney Disciplinary Board, which does the same thing for complaints against attorneys. So uh, when complaints are made against judges uh, or attorneys, it goes to the proper board. Uh, They may or may not initiate a proceeding against a judge or attorney. based on the facts and the investigation, and whether or not attorneys and judges are disciplined is ultimately uh, decided by the Louisiana Supreme Court. So uh, I I believe that uh, there's been some deficiency in that regard. I think uh, attorneys and judges have gotten away with with, uh, things that... um, should have uh, been dealt with more seriously. So, and that's another important um, um, perspective I can bring to the state Supreme Court. Okay. And another quick question. Um, When you were talking about the trials and constitutional issues in family court, um, there's a, a small movement of people who are trying to push for jury trials for family court cases. Are you aware of that, and are you? In, uh, do, is that something you see would be sure. beneficial or not? I, I, I've been involved in family court jury trials both in Texas and in Michigan. Um, I think um, I, that would have to be something that the legislature would do. Uh, mm-hmm. I I don't know that that's absolutely necessary to have. Uh, I think that probably that movement. Now, Texas is a little different because historically Texas um, is a a jury trial state. They like everything to be um, by jury, as Virginia does, although Virginia doesn't really have family court jury trials. Virginia is a very pro-jury state. Um, I, I, I think one of the considerations would be that our family court systems that are already overwhelmed by volume, uh, I don't know how they could handle jury trials. Uh, We have a large number of people who don't have attorneys uh, already, and it's very hard for them to navigate uh, a trial with a judge, and so that would be an additional burden on them were there to be a jury. I think... uh, Probably uh, a more feasible way is to just improve the statutes, the um, the uh, training for judges, the accountability for judges, both in appellate review, in discipline, and in in public scrutiny. I think that's probably a more feasible way in the long run for the for the uh, um, for the greater number of people. Uh, but however. You know, on the Supreme Court, I would simply have to look at whatever the legislature did in that regard and apply the law. So, um, but mm-hmm. I, I, I know in the states that have had juries and family court cases, you hear different things. You know, people, some people like it, some people don't, and 
That's like most things, I, I guess. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I, I see pros and cons to it. Um, so, but, you know, I think it's clear from the people that I interview that something needs to be done. You know, there needs to be some sort of changes. And that's where I say most people are coming down to, well, we need to educate judges. We need to educate judges. Sure. But um, I don't, I don't, you, you can't educate somebody unless they want to be educated. Um, and if they think they already understand the problem, I, you know, human yeah. nature says that I'm not particularly interested in continuing to study this problem. I, I know all about it. So that's Well, I, I, I think um, there's one concept that, I, that I've been explaining to people for as long as I've been practicing law. And I think this says a lot for what the problem is. You can take... Uh, a certain amount of evidence that a, a child is being abused by a parent and take that into a criminal court and have a criminal ju- uh, court jury uh, listen to that evidence, have that jury be instructed that they have to find in order to convict proof beyond a reasonable doubt that a crime was committed, and juries will do that, and um and then the judge will impose a very long sentence for based on that evidence, and the appellate court will affirm the uh, long sentence based on that evidence. If you take it to a juvenile court in a in a child protection case and do the same thing with the same evidence, you'll you will have a juvenile judge say, "Yes, I find that the child was abused, and I will protect the child, place the child in foster care, whatever." If you take that same evidence and bring it to a family court judge, uh, what often happens is the family court judge says that this is no evidence at all of abuse, and it's really evidence that the mother made it up to get back at the father, and then they will use that to uh, give the abusive parent, if it's the father or if, or if the abusive parent's the mother, they'll give the child to the abusive parent. Now, why is that? Because... Uh, the juvenile court and the criminal court are fact-based. They are interested in facts. And I think that what's happened in the family court, and this is what is discussed in my master's thesis, which is available on the Facebook page, Dakota for Justice, and on the dakotaforjustice.com website. The family courts are not so interested in facts. They're interested in conflict. You know, what parent seems to be causing the conflict? Now, if if you're a parent who's trying to protect your child, then you better be causing conflict. You know, we, we give um, uh, parents a double message. We say, look, you have to protect your child from the other parent. If you don't, we'll take the child away from you and put the child in foster care because you're complicit or you're neglectful or you've chosen your man over your child or whatever. And there are mothers who who are know that their their partners or their husbands or their boyfriends are abusing the child but but stay with that abusive person and let the kids be abused and and uh because they don't want to lose the relationship or they're uh very often coerced, intimidated or afraid or whatever. Uh, but the law treats those those moms very harshly. But if she goes into family court and says, look, I've done what, what you all are telling me to do. I am 
asking for sole custody, I believe that, that this father is abusing this child, then they're often told by, by professionals in the family court system, uh, you're just being vindictive. You don't want the child to have a relationship with the father. Therefore, the um, the father should get custody. So this last session in the Louisiana legislature, I and two other attorneys wrote uh, an overhaul of the Louisiana child custody factors that uh, prohibit that sort of reaction from family court judges. And the new law that we wrote that went to effect in in May of this year, uh, I'm sorry, of 2018, says that the potential for the child to be abused is the primary and the first and foremost consideration for um, child custody decisions. So uh, it's it it it's again, it's the family courts trying to impose uh, a one size fits all on every type of family, and the failure of the family courts and the lawyers to to run a court like courts are supposed to run based on facts as opposed to these uh, very often pop sort of uh, uh, notions. For example, and this is a good example, I had a case in Tangipahoa Parish where a psychologist uh, said that a mother should lose custody because of enmeshment. Enmeshment was her psychological term. So I said, well, what is enmeshment? What is that? She said, well, that's when a child tries to live up to the expectations of the parent, and the parent has expectations for the child. This is a psychologist. Is I said, well, isn't that, isn't that, that's right. I, that sounds like a good thing to me. I, I thought that's what parents are supposed to do and kids are supposed to do. But but these things that are, are, uh, are normal are now made dysfunctional. And then, you know, the ultimate, and this is so frightening, is is the push in a number of states for infanticide, for babies who are actually born to be murdered for the sake of expediency. Well, back in in the nineteen early 1990s, I wrote uh, three laws in Louisiana that prohibit any kind of infanticide, any kind of killing babies who are born in the in the uh, process of an abortion who survived from being killed. And what the law I wrote says, and, and it's still the law in Louisiana, is if, you know, parents can't say, oh, uh, you know, this child has a problem or some sort of handicap or, you know, we were trying to uh, abort her, but it, the child was born. So, and and we said, no, that what you do is you, you have to give up your rights to the child. The child has to find a... Uh, the state has to find a child, the child in an adoptive home and take care of the child. Parents don't have the option to murder their babies. And you see that that movement now around the country, and it's absolutely frightening. So, Well, uh, one other question here. I keep saying that one other, one other. It's because I keep sure. looking at the clock going, I have time for this question. Um, <laughs> um, you had mentioned, and I'm, I want to get to this at the very end, um, but you had mentioned um, that you were kind of drawn to this field. I wanted to get back to that. Sure. Why? What, well, what really brought you into this field, not just law, but the field of, of a kind of focusing on family yeah. law and constitutional issues? Well, when, when I was growing up, uh, we had five kids in our family. My mother was pregnant for 
my youngest sister. And six weeks before my uh, youngest sister was born, uh, my father died suddenly. And he was a geologist, and my mother was a stay-at-home mom, and we were in private schools, Catholic schools. And, uh, you know, our lives uh, fell apart. I mean, nobody was prepared for that. And my father's boss uh, came to my mother and said, how much do you owe on your house? And he was going to write a check and pay off the house. And there was insurance, so he didn't have to do that. Well, what he did was he continued to pay my father's salary for the next 18 years. And so my mother... My mother didn't have to go to work. We were all able to go to college. Of course, we had scholarships, too. Uh, we were able to have a good life based on that uh, Mr. Hellis's. His name was William Hellis's generosity. We also had a pediatrician, who, and we had six kids. And um, we... Uh, Dr. Thomas, the pediatrician, never sent my mother another bill. So, again, we were able to navigate, um, my mother and six kids, um, this, you know, our lives, you know, with with due to the generosity of primarily uh, Mr. Ellis and Dr. Thomas. So, I wanted to be able to uh, give back um, for that wonderful generosity that that we we received, and so when I was in law school, I was a juvenile probation officer and just started encountering um, kids who were abandoned, who were abused, who were in foster care, in foster care, and stayed in foster care, and rather than be adopted, and I just I, my approach to everything, every kind of problem I encountered was. What can I, how can I fix this? So I would, I, you know, I, again, I, I would drive all over the state, training all the social workers, trying uh, cases to free kids for adoption all over the state. I would, I would zigzag the state. I'd get up at midnight, drive up to Shreveport, get there at seven in the morning, um, then drive to Monroe, zigzag around, uh, you know, writing these laws. Uh, and again, it was not without a great deal of a personal cost to me, and a lot of financial cost because I've never made much money practicing law. But that's not the important thing at all. So I, I just, I, I just thought that you know there was that I had a purpose in life. I think this is what it was. I think the Supreme Court is the um, the uh, the eventual uh, eventual. Um, cap on that career. I think everything I've ever done in my life has prepared me for the Supreme Court, and uh, and that's why I'm running. Well, I thank you, uh, Richard Ducote. I thank you very, very much. Again, give your website, please. Um, sure. Because, so D- people can learn more. com, and that's D-U-C-O-T-E-F-O-R, justice, J-U-S-T-I-C-E.com. Or if you can go to Facebook, um, do Cody for Justice on Facebook, and um, you'll see uh, pretty much uh, um, what I've done, and and we um, 
keep adding every day, and it's been an interesting process because uh, going through uh, these cases and and posting things, it's it's brought back a, a lot of memories. Uh, you know, with a lot of tragedies, I've seen you know just terrible, terrible, uh, probably the worst of of humanity and the abuse of kids and 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 the best of humanity and in the uh, saving of kids by foster parents, adoptive parents, uh, social workers, psychologists, doctors, and uh, you know I've I've seen dead babies and and babies who've overcome terrible abuse. Uh, you know I've had kids who I worked with their moms when they were infants who are now lawyers uh, who've who've uh, come through the office and and it's just it's just uh, just wonderful wonderful um, experience. Well, I wish you good luck with your campaign. This is the point at which I would say, where do I send a contribution? But you told me you are uh, not oh, accepting I, This is a very important point. I'm not taking one penny of contributions from anybody, no lawyers, no family, no friends, no businesses. Uh, other people who run for judge take take hundreds of thousands of dollars from lawyers, and I think that's just not right, and I'm not taking a penny. Well, if there's anything we can do to help support you, let us know. And I appreciate your efforts. I appreciate the work you do, and I wish you every success in your uh, your your uh, campaign. Well, thank you, thank you very much, forward. Heather, and thank thank, thank you for the great work you do. I appreciate it. Well, well, thank you, and I appreciate you out there for listening. Make sure you share the website. Make sure you share the audio with everyone so that they can all uh, get a taste of what Richard Cody has been doing. As I said, he's been on the show before, but I, I really appreciate his coming back and explaining some of these things. Thank you, and join us Thank next you. week on Three Women, Three Ways. 